Hello and welcome back to the Church's True Faith Crisis and Reconstruction podcast series. I'm Rob Terry. Today's episode is on the Book of Abraham. We'll also cover Book of Moses, Joseph Smith translation, and some other revelations. Book of Abraham is a big deal in the faith crisis world. It was probably the number one issue for me. It's frequently cited as the number one issue or one of the top issues for a lot of people to go through faith crisis or decide to leave the church. When I roughed out this 12-episode podcast series, I was not super excited about this episode. What's fueling me now is faith reconstruction, and and I didn't see a lot of opportunities for faith reconstruction in this episode. It's kind of a downer. It's just kind of something we have to explain but what I like about this issue is that I think it serves as a microcosm for the entire paradigm of how we view Scripture, how we encounter issues, and then how we shift into a new paradigm. I think the same process is going on here for the Book of Abraham as it is for the Book of Mormon and for other faith crisis issues, and so I think we're going to have a really good discussion. So let's get started. The heading for the Book of Abraham says, A translation of some ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt, the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt called the Book of Abraham written by his own hand upon papyrus. To put this into context, our oldest Old Testament writings we believe to be about 900 BC, maybe as old as 1000 BC. Abraham would have lived about 1800 to 2000 BC. So if Abraham would have written this text, it would be about a thousand years older than the very oldest Old Testament writings that we have. This would be among the oldest writings of the entire human history. So this would be a really big deal if this was truly writing written by the hand of Abraham. The way this story starts is Michael Chandler came to Kirtland, Ohio with some mummies. He was an entrepreneur who purchased some mummies Egyptian mummies, and with those there were some scrolls, ancient scrolls, and he was going around kind of like a traveling circus, showing a traveling museum. This was a kind of a popular thing to do back in these days. They called it Egyptomania. People had a high interest in Egypt. It was mysterious and ancient, the pyramids, the mummies, all that. The Rosetta Stone, which scholars used to be able to crack the code of translating Egyptian. The Rosetta Stone had been already found and discovered, and scholars were working on trying to trying to crack Egyptian, but it wasn't done yet. And so during this time period, Egyptian was still mysterious. It was not able to be translated or read by anyone. So no one could read this papyrus and know what was on it. Joseph Smith looked at the mummies and looked at the papyrus, and he declared that this was the book of Abraham and Joseph, the ancient patriarchs. And Joseph Smith purchased the mummies and the scrolls from Michael Chandler, and then they went to work on translating the record of Abraham. The Book of Abraham, they started working on it in 1835. It wasn't published until 1842. Then over time, the papyri was lost. It was passed through different hands. It was believed to have been destroyed in a fire. But then in the 1960s, it turns up in a museum. The museum contacted the church and said, this might be something you're interested in. It had record, it had writings and text on it from Joseph Smith and his team that were working on these scrolls trying to translate them. So that's how they knew the LDS Church would be interested. And so now 
we look at them and we see that these are the papyri that Joseph Smith had. Now Egyptologists can look at this and translate it and see if it matches the Book of Abraham. Well, what Egyptologists find is that this papyri is a common funerary text that was common to put into people when they died. This was like instructions for the dead, instructions for the afterlife, requests to the Egyptian gods to look over this person and to have mercy on this person. This was a common text that was buried with mummies back in the day. And these scrolls are dated to about 200 BC, which is ancient, but nowhere near as ancient as Abraham, who would have been almost 2,000 years prior to that. So now as a church, we have to figure out exactly what is the book of Abraham if it's not the text of the papyri, and that's what we're going to do in this episode, hopefully. Robin Jensen and Brian Hoglied are two LDS scholars who are overseeing the Joseph Smith Papers Project, which is a church-run project. There's a lot of early church history documents that the church is trying to make accessible online, and they've put together this Joseph Smith Papers Project, and they have historians who are putting this online and then also doing summary documentation explaining different things. And for the Book of Abraham, Robin Jensen and Brian Hoglied are the two scholars that are in charge of this. They did a very interesting podcast episode with Blair Hodges of the Maxwell Institute podcast. In this, they talked about how they view the Book of Abraham and their experience doing this Joseph Smith Papers project. And they tell us about this Kirtland Egyptian Papers project. In Kirtland, Joseph Smith put together this little team, W.W. Phelps, Warren Parrish, and some other people, and they were attempting to translate the Book of Abraham, it appears. They called this the Kirtland Egyptian Papers. And you think of when you had to do your math homework and your teacher told you you had to show your work. Well, Robin Jensen and Brian Hoglied are telling us that these currently Egyptian papers are kind of like Joseph Smith showing his work on how he did, how he went from the papyri to the Book of Abraham. For the Book of Mormon, we don't have that. Robin Jensen tells us this anecdote from church history where in a church meeting, Hiram stood up and said, hey, Joseph, why don't you tell us how you translated the Book of Mormon? And Joseph Smith says, no, I'm not going to tell you. It's not for the world to know. And then we have the quote, I translated it by the gift and power of God. That's all we know about the Book of Mormon translation and how he did it. But for the Book of Abraham, Robin Jensen and Brian Hoglied are saying, we actually do have the process and it's this currently in Egyptian papers and let's look at this and learn from it. Maybe we can learn about Joseph Smith and the process of revelation. Robin Jensen reminds Blair Hodges about the Doctrine and Covenants verse where Oliver Cowdery is commanded to study it out in his mind. Robin says, Oliver wanted to translate. Joseph Smith allowed him to try it out. He tried, failed. They received a revelation that essentially said, Oliver, you didn't think this through. You thought you would just get the translation, but you have to study it out in your mind. I believe that the Egyptian language documents that are published in this volume is the documentary record of Joseph Smith and others studying out in their mind. Very interesting. So this gives us a window into Revelation. Okay, let's look at some of these images. They, they should be in your show notes, or you can click on the blog and look at these images. We're going to go through this quickly, and it's going to be kind of difficult over a podcast episode, but it, so it might be best to do this offline yourself. Image one shows a large image of the papyri. Here you can see there's the facsimile, the image uh, there on the right, and then you can see where the papyri was missing, where Joseph Smith and his team tried to pencil in what they think should have been there. And then you see the yellow square and the Egyptian there. 
That's where we believe, according to the Kirtland Egyptian project, that text of the Book of Abraham comes from those Egyptian writings. Now let's go to image two. This is a close-up of that area inside that yellow square. And then we have red arrows going over to a text, and it's written in cursive, so it's hard to read. And then image three has this same as image two, but just typed out instead of in cursive, so you can follow along a little easier. So you can see that what they did was they took an Egyptian hieroglyph, they put it there in the left-hand column, and then they put about eight or nine rows of text next to it. And that text is what's actually in the book of Abraham. So that first hieroglyph correlates to Abraham chapter 1, verse 11, verse 12. And it was done after the manner of the Egyptians, and it came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me that they might slay me also, and so on. Then that second hieroglyph, it's kind of like a backwards E, that correlates to Abraham 1, verse 13. It was made after the form of a bedstead, and so on. And then that third one is kind of a squiggly, and it correlates to text that goes into the book of Abraham. We can clearly see the thought process that Joseph and his team were taking an Egyptian hieroglyph and then lining it up and then translating that into English text. And this highlights what we said in the Book of Mormon episode about how Moroni said that they used Egyptian because it was a very efficient language and it was to save space. If not, they would have much rather used Hebrew. I believe that's a misunderstanding of Egyptian, that it's a very efficient language. And this shows kind of the thought process that Joseph had when he was thinking about this, because he believed one hieroglyph could correlate to several sentences of text when the actual Egyptian meaning was like one word. That's on that far side of that image three. Now let's go to image four, five, and six, and these are the facsimiles. You know when you're a kid and you're bored in church and you look in your scriptures and to let those interesting looking images in the book of Abraham, image four is from the actual papyri, and you can see penciled in what they thought was missing in that image, and then image five is what we actually have in the book of Abraham in our scripture. That's what they believed should have been there if we had the whole image. And then image six is what is common from these funerary texts that come out of these mummies, quite common. There's a facsimile that looks like this in these scrolls. So Joseph Smith's translation of this is that the Abraham's lying on his back on that altar, and then there's an evil Egyptian priest that's going to kill him and sacrifice him. But then in the real Egyptian version that the Egyptologists say is more correct, it's that jackal head instead of a human head. That is signifying the Egyptian god Horus, the jackal head. And he is there to offer up the dead to heaven. Joseph Smith translated this as an Egyptian priest that's about to sacrifice Abraham. And then Joseph Smith goes on to look at these different symbols in this facsimile and, and identify them as being different symbolic meanings. And then Egyptologists have different symbolic meanings for each of these items. So this is problematic because Egyptologists are saying that this translation is not correct according to the actual Egyptian in both the Abraham text and the images, the facsimiles. A couple of other problems in the book of Abraham. One is the creation account. In the book of Abraham, Joseph Smith harmonizes the two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 we talked about in the Old Testament episode. And I think it's a real brilliant harmonization of those two. 
but I don't think scholars would believe it's possible that an ancient person could have done this in Abraham's time period because those creation accounts are specific writings that didn't come about until one of them 1000 BC and another one more like 600 BC. And so it's very unlikely that Abraham could have been the one trying to harmonize those two accounts. Another issue is that the book of Abraham seems to preserve the curse of Ham, which is a modern racist invention looking at how black people came about through the curse of Cain and the curse of Ham. Abraham 1, verse 23 and 24, the land of Egypt being first discovered by a woman who is the daughter of Ham and the daughter of Egyptus, which in the Chaldean signifies Egypt, which signifies that which is forbidden. When this woman discovered the land, it was under water, who afterwards settled her sons in it, and thus from Ham sprang that race which preserved the curse in the land. So this is a very sensitive topic right now. And I think the best approach is just to acknowledge that, yes, this is racist. We have racist interpretations in our scriptures. We disavow it now. Gospel Topics essay on the priesthood ban, the church published this. Today, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a premortal life, that mixed race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism past and present in any form, which includes scripture. So the church came out very strongly saying that God never cursed anyone with skin color. Skin color is determined by genetic and scientific ways that we can understand through science, not through religion and not because of God cursed. So if we see something in the book of Abraham that implies that there's a curse, or if we see something in the book of Mormon that implies that God cursed the Lamanites to have dark skin, we're wrong in how we interpret that scripture, or we're wrong in the sense that whoever wrote that scripture was wrong, and that was not God-ordained. Even though it's in our scripture, I believe that we have things in our scriptures that are not necessarily God-ordained, and this is one of them. Another criticism of the book of Abraham is that there are various source material that Joseph could have been drawing upon to put this together. A lot of the backstory related to the book of Abraham his parents were idolaters, that he taught astronomy, that he was offered his sacrifice. Some of these things appear in the book Antiquities of Freemasonry. Some of them appear in an encyclopedia entry that Joseph might have had access to. Some of it comes out of Josephus. Some people think he might have been drawing upon Thomas Dick's material when he writes about intelligences and spirit matter and those kind of doctrines. The book of Jasher is a Midrashic book that was translated in 1840 that has some of the book of Abraham material. There's a question about whether or not Joseph had access to that. The book of Abraham has a lot of inspiring doctrines, doctrines that are very spiritually inspiring and intellectually affirming to a lot of LDS, deep doctrines like the preexistence, the council of the gods, Kolob and the cosmology of heaven, the idea that God created through organizing matter instead of ex nihilo, which is, you know, out of nothing, which is an idea that's very compatible with modern science. And there's some very interesting doctrine there that's faith affirming to a lot of people. And just like everything else that Joseph did, yeah, there might be source material for it, but I believe he was choosing the very best of the doctrines that he saw available. Of this idea that he plagiarized some of these things, Terrell Given says this. 
I think it's almost comical, the silliness of those people who say, oh, I have found another plagiarism of Joseph Smith. Look at this. He got this from Charles Buck, or he got this from Adam Clark. No. Joseph published in the church newspaper most of the sources when he found a good source for an idea that he reaffirmed. Whether that's baptism for the dead or progression through the kingdoms or Thomas Dick, he was excited to find another gem that he could incorporate into the restoration. We have to shift our model of understanding Joseph's conceiving of himself. He was an inspired syncretist. Let me say that one more time because I think it's really powerful insight into what Joseph Smith was doing in the restoration. He was an inspired syncretist. He took all the best ideas and through inspiration from God, he gave us the very best of them. In the Gospel Topics essay that the church did on the Book of Abraham, and this is another issue, the church is doing a great job. This was a huge surprise to me. I learned this from quote-unquote anti-Mormon sources and when I was going through my faith crisis in the, in the mid-2000s. Now this is something that you can learn straight on the church's website and learn it from faithful LDS scholars and, and make sense of it without being surprised from critical sources. In the Gospel Topics essay, the church throws out two possible theories that faithful LDS now use to try to make sense of this issue. The first one is the missing scroll theory. Terrell Gibbons was asked if he believes in this missing scroll theory or if he believes that the papyri that we found have the portion of the Book of Abraham that was translated. It's my impression from my review of the literature and what's been published on the subject that most scholars who are seriously inquiring into the subject think that we do. Those who think that we do not have the original, that would be people like John Gee and Hugh Nibley. They would argue that, well, he could have just been experimenting by juxtaposing the narrative with those symbols to see if there is a match. So let me interject here and explain something. When we talked about the Kirtland Egyptian papers, we showed how they lined up the Egyptian hieroglyphs into the Book of Abraham text and how that is wrong. Well, some scholars like John Gee are saying that that was not their work product, like their homework, showing their work for how they did the translation. The translation was done first, and then this KEP is kind of a secondary effort, non-inspired, non-relevatory, non-prophetic effort done by other people, not Joseph Smith. And they were just experimenting. They took Joseph Smith's translation, and then they were trying to make their own Rosetta Stone, taking the English, matching it up with the Egyptian hieroglyphs. And they had no idea what part of the papyri Joseph was translating from, and they lined it up wrong. And so, yes, of course, it doesn't line up with actual Egyptian. There's a missing scroll, and that's the portion where Joseph was actually translating from. Okay, back to Terrell Gibbons quote, John Gee is convinced that we don't have the original manuscript because so many contemporaries apparently refer to a long scroll from which Joseph worked and we don't have the long scroll, but those are generally much later recollections and subject to all kinds of problems. My personal sense is that, yeah, we probably do have the source document. And the proponents of the missing scroll theory, like John Gee and Carrie Muelstein of BYU, they believe there's some bullseyes in the Book of Abraham text and in the facsimiles that correlate to true ancient Egyptian ideas and practices. I look at what they're saying and I feel like that amounts to a lot of parallelomania. And then I think that based on getting the facsimiles wrong, we clearly have the facsimiles. We may not have the Book of Abraham text, but it seems unlikely based on the facsimiles and what we do have that the Book of Abraham was there. And also based on the other evidence that there is source material that Joseph Smith was likely drawing upon, and so on. Because of that, I think the missing scroll idea is very implausible. So the second theory is the catalyst theory. 
The catalyst theory was alive when I was going through faith crisis 15 years ago, and it was considered a very liberal concept. It was frowned upon by the conservative scholars and most of the LDS defenders. And I was quite surprised and pleased that the church endorsed the catalyst theory when it came out with the Gospel Topics essay. This is from the church's Gospel Topics essay. Alternatively, Joseph's study of the papyri may have led to a revelation about key events and teachings in the life of Abraham, much as he had earlier received a revelation about the life of Moses while studying the Bible. This view assumes a broader definition of the words translator and translation. According to this view, Joseph's translation was not a literal rendering of the papyri as a conventional translation would be. Rather, the physical artifacts provided an occasion for meditation, reflection, and revelation. They catalyzed a process whereby God gave to Joseph Smith a revelation about the life of Abraham, even if that revelation did not directly correlate to the characters on the papyri. So I think that's great. The church is acknowledging this catalyst theory as an endorsed theory that faithful LDS can use and understand that this is not a direct translation, but that it's a revelation. Joseph Smith was inspired thinking, looking at the papyri, thinking about things, and it got his prophetic juices flowing, and he tapped into the Spirit, and then he was able to reveal the Book of Abraham text. David Bakavoy says, The Book of Abraham is, from Joseph Smith's perspective, what Abraham would have written if given the chance. Back to Robin Jensen and Brian Hogley in their Blair Hodges interview. Robin Jensen is comparing what brother of Jared did, presenting the stones to to God to, to be transformed. And he says, I see Joseph Smith as doing the exact same thing, where he is putting in the effort, so to speak. He wants revelation. He's seeking it out. As part of that, he expects a certain element of his own intellectual efforts. He's studying it out in his mind, in other words. I see that as we look to Joseph Smith's revelations. There's a little bit of Joseph Smith in those revelations. The very fact that he's dictating ancient texts in the English language means that there's a human filter involved, that God really does speak to his children, quote, according to his own understanding, according to their own language. That's from Doctrine and Covenants 124 and 2 Nephi 31.3. Joseph Smith is a prophet. He's also a man. And I think sometimes we need to make sense of that contradiction, sometimes within the revelatory process itself. And then Brian Hogley adds to that, yes, Human effort, divine sanction. I love that phrase. Human effort, divine sanction. That takes me back to what I said about Joseph using the seer stone. And it's said that Joseph did use a seer stone for translating a portion of this book of Abraham. He used it for the portion of the book of Abraham, some of the Doctrine and Covenants revelations, and the Book of Mormon. And I believe that when Joseph Smith looked in the seer stone, he believed that what he saw in the seer stone First, his human effort, then he goes to the seer stone, and that's where the divine sanction and the divine sanctifying comes. Back to Dr. Hogley. Just what we find in Doctrine and Covenants there, human effort. There has to be a human effort part, and I think these papers could be looked at that way as representing that portion. It's all part of that inspiration. One is not inspiration, and the other is just intellectual. I think it's all inspiration to them. So it doesn't matter if what he did with the Kirtland Egyptian papers and all this study was wrong. The study is the important part. And then you do the study and then that gets you in the revelatory spirit. And then God sanctifies it. That's how we get revelation. That's how we get scripture. Then of course, we come back to all the questions. Is Joseph Smith a fraud? Is he delusional? Just like what we asked in the Book of Mormon. Terrell Given says this, in all honesty, I should address this because it's a problem. And this is what Joseph clearly believed. He was working with a pyre that were authored by Abraham. So even if you grant this more expansive definition of translation as I want to, 
you still have to deal with that problem. Paul said, whether in the body or out of the body, I couldn't tell. Paul couldn't tell what was happening to him in a revelatory experience. So the notion that Joseph was fully self-aware and cognizant and rational about it exactly, I don't know. You're overcome by the Spirit, and who knows what's happening from that point on. So I think very plainly Joseph was mistaken. I don't think Terrell Givens would use the word delusional, but he's saying that Joseph was mistaken. Greg Prince says the key to understanding the Book of Mormon is to fast forward five years and look at the Book of Abraham. He quotes one of his Jewish scholar friends that says, the Book of Mormon is a book-length midrash on the Bible. Midrash is a Jewish rabbinical process that was going on in the centuries before Christ and the centuries after Christ, where they looked at the text of the Old Testament, the Torah and the Talmud, and they expanded it, they made commentary on it, they added in backstory. They're seeking revelation and they're seeking inspiration in in filling in some of the gaps in some of the Old Testament. And Greg Prince is saying that both the Book of Mormon Book of Abraham and Joseph's other translations, this is a very appropriate way to view this. Robin Jensen and Brian Hoglead are acting in official church roles in their role in managing the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and their publications now become official church publications. The Gospel Topics essay is in a church is an official church publication. And here the church seems to be shifting away from the literal view and latching onto a little bit more liberal view of this. And some conservative scholars are kicking back against this. John Gee gave a presentation at Fair Mormon in 2018 titled Selling Our Birthright for a Mess of Pottage, the Historical Authenticity of the Book of Abraham. And in this presentation, it's very interesting. He's not using his research to argue for a literal Book of Abraham translation, but he's just generally kind of fighting against the general concepts of progressive Mormonism and against liberal interpretations of Scripture and the dangers of what happens if we move away from historicity. He says, for example, the Book of Mormon is another witness of Jesus Christ. It tells how Jesus Christ ministered to people in ancient America. If the Book of Mormon is merely fictional, then its witness of Jesus Christ is a false witness. One cannot trust or have faith in stories of God's deliverance if those stories are not in fact true. Thus, while the teachings of Scripture may be the most important thing, those teachings lose their force if those teachings are not historical, if they are not true. Historical authenticity is thus not a minor issue or one that can be neglected. This is also the case with the book of Abraham. I don't know if that's really true. I think what's powerful is the Holy Ghost moving in our hearts as we read Scripture. And I don't know that it's necessary that the stories and lessons that we read are historically accurate for the Holy Ghost to witness that the principles are true. I understand why someone takes this perspective, but I just don't agree with that. He goes on, The Book of Abraham and its teachings are inextricably woven into the fabric of Latter-day Saint thought. Its veracity and historical authenticity cannot be rejected without major consequences. Surrendering the historical authenticity of the Book of Abraham or the Book of Mormon undermines teachings of vital importance to Latter-day Saints to help them navigate their way in the modern world. To that, I say I agree in the sense that a shift in paradigm on religion doesn't come without major consequences. It's tough stuff. It's tough to make sense of it. In a lot of ways, I wish I still had that literal paradigm and I knew things with absolute certainty. Now I have to take things on faith. I have to take things with hope. 
I have to use the gift of the Holy Ghost to determine what I think is absolutely true or what I should put my faith into. It does change a lot. And I understand why someone would want to hold on to that idea that all of our scripture is God-breathed. You don't need to wonder about any of it. It's all certain. It's all absolutely true in a God-breathed way. That's very powerful. And it's very difficult to move away from that paradigm. But I don't think the paradigm comes first, and then we try to force all the data and all the evidence to fit the paradigm. I think it's natural to have a literal paradigm, but then as the data and the evidence comes, if that shifts us away from that paradigm, then I think that has to happen naturally. I don't think it's possible to just define the paradigm and then force the data and force the evidence to fit it. He says, part of the value in seeing general rules in the scriptures is seeing the actual application of those rules. The rules lose their validity if the stories in which they are said to apply did not occur. What about parables? We see rules in our lives in parables. What about Alma and the seed? That's one of the most important rules in the scripture, I believe. But it's parable. It's not based on an actual history. Alma encourages us to experiment on the word and to nourish it and to see if it can grow. None of that is literal. None of that is a historical application. Back to Dr. Gee, the Book of Mormon does not in fact permit itself to be considered as true, but not historically authentic. Consider the following passage that Moroni wrote. Then he talks about Moroni 10, where Moroni tells us he will meet us at the bar of God. Now, if Moroni was not an actual historical person who really lived and wrote these words, then he would not appear at the bar of God, and the writer of the words was lying. The Book of Mormon is either ancient and historical, or it is a lie. I just refuse to go with a binary. The world is not black and white, and that's tough to acknowledge and deal with it, but that's the reality of life. It does not leave the possibility of being pious, inspired, or inspiring fiction open for itself. What happens when you bracket or consistently bracket or reject or refuse to deal with historical authenticity? Then you are bracketing or rejecting or refusing to deal with an issue that President Oaks has said is fundamental. He's referring to President Oaks gave a talk at a farm's dinner in 1993. And in this talk, he talked about the importance of Book of Mormon historicity. And I understand that President Oaks believes or believed then that Book of Mormon historicity is imperative. I sustain President Oaks. I love President Oaks. I listen to all of his teachings and I grapple with them. I may not agree with all of them. I also love Elder Holland and I sustain him. Elder Holland in a conference talk a few years ago appeared to be saying that there was no death on earth before the fall of Adam. And that was a very difficult thing for a lot of people who believe in evolution and have been able to make that work with their LDS testimony. That was very challenging to deal with. And so I'm not sure what Elder Holland meant, but I have to think either I didn't understand him completely or maybe I disagree. Elder Christofferson told us it's okay to disagree at times with the brethren. I personally think it's important to take everything they say very seriously and wrestle with it and pray about it and seek the Holy Ghost to determine if it's relevant and important in our lives but there may be things that we just personally don't agree with. John Gee gives this quote that I think gives a lot of insight into his perspective. He's quoting a progressive Jewish rabbi who said this, I feel my real community to be among progressive-minded people. Really, I would say the biggest defining issue among religion is not Jew, Catholic, Protestant. It's fundamentalist religion, or what I would 
call a status quo hierarchical vision of religion versus progressive, non-hierarchical, non-fundamentalistic religion. The differences are the most profound between these two camps, not between Jews and Muslims or Muslims and Christians. I can sit in a room with progressive religionists from whatever faith and feel like I'm perfectly at home with them because we share that common view of, re- of what religion should be. That's a really loaded paragraph. And I agree with John Gee to be very concerned about this kind of perspective. I do not share that perspective that that Jewish rabbi has. I have a more liberal, a more progressive interpretation of the LDS religion than John Gee does. But I truly believe I'm closer to John Gee and how I view the restoration, how I view my testimony of God, how I view my testimony of Jesus Christ and of true religion. I don't know John Gee personally, but I truly believe that I'm closer to him than I am some progressive Christian or progressive Jew. There are fundamental aspects of our religion that are important to us, regardless if we take a strictly literal interpretation or a more metaphorical approach. Now let's go back to Brian Hogley. He wrote in a Facebook post, and I know Facebook posts probably are not the best source of information. I wouldn't, I've written a lot of Facebook posts, and I wouldn't want someone taking one obscure post and trying to represent me from that. But I think this is consistent with what he said in other sources, so I'll go ahead with this. He says, I wholeheartedly agree with Dan Vogel's excellent assessment of the Abraham Egyptian documents in these videos. I now reject a missing Abraham manuscript. That's the lost scroll theory. I agree that two of the Abraham manuscripts were simultaneously dictated. I agree that the Egyptian papers were used to produce the Book of Abraham. That's stating that he believes that the KEP was not a reverse engineering process. It was actually used in the translation production. I agree that only Abraham 1 through 2.18 were produced in 1835 and that Abraham 2.19 through the end were produced in Nauvoo. And the reason that's important is I think related to that Book of Jasher that came out in 1840 and whether or not that could have been used by Joseph or whether or not that's a true bullseye. And on and on. I no longer agree with Guy or Mulestein. One can find that I've changed my mind in my recent and forthcoming publications, the most recent Joseph Smith Papers Revelations in Translation Volume 4, The Book of Abraham and Related Manuscripts, is much more open to Dan Vogel's thinking on the origin of the Book of Abraham. Those are official church publications. I don't want to make a big deal out of this controversy, but there's this idea that there's Brian Hogleed and Terrell Givens and the Maxwell Institute on one side who are kind of pushing for a little bit more liberal a little bit less literalistic, fundamentalistic view of the restoration. And then there's the Fair Mormon approach, John Gee, Dan Peterson, Book of Mormon Central. And they take a little bit more conservative approach, a more literalistic approach that these things are ancient translations. And I don't want to make a big deal out of this controversy because I love both of these groups. I myself relate more to the Maxwell Institute side of things. In fact, I'm obviously even a little further past them in terms of viewing things metaphorically and less fundamentalistic. But I love both of these groups, and I see both of these groups as representing good, faithful LDS. And this is not the good guys against the bad guys. Both of these groups represent good, faithful LDS thinking. I think members of the Quorum of the Twelve and leadership of the church might be divided in which side they might view things. I think these are tough issues that we as a church have to figure out, and we're doing it. And there's going to be disagreement, 
but we're all on the same team and let's figure out ways of viewing these things that work for everybody and try to keep this church together and not be divisive and try to set boundaries and tell each other that they're wrong. Okay, let's hit the Kinderhook plates. In 1843, a year before Joseph's martyrdom, some men fabricated small brass plates with Egyptian-looking writing on them and tried to trick Joseph Smith. They came to him. There were six small plates with these Egyptian-looking glyphs front and back. And Joseph looked at them, and he seemed to take them as being authentic. He put them on display in his house. He said they were buried with a Jaredite. You know, these are Book of Mormon lands, America. And he took a shot at translating them. But it never went very far, and he didn't publish anything. But this is really interesting. This is a finding that Don Bradley made and presented in a Fair Mormon presentation. Don Bradley's a genius. In the KEP, there's a boat symbol. This is image 9 and 10 in your show notes. And the English text that the KEP said is attributed to this little boat symbol is honor by birth, kingly power by the line of Pharaoh, possession by birth, one who reigns upon his throne universally, possession of heaven and earth and of the blessings of the earth. William Clayton was acting as Joseph's historian, and he made this account. President Joseph has translated a portion and says they contain the history of the person with whom they were found, and he was a descendant of Ham, listen to this part, through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and that he received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. All these key phrases from that KEP that lined up with this boat. Well, when you look at the Kinderhook plates, the second plate, the top symbol, was a boat-looking thing. So in my mind, this is probably a 90% hit just looking at the two KEP versus what William Clayton says. But then when you add the boat to it, I think that kicks it up to like a 99% hit. I think Don Bradley is really onto something that Joe Smith looked at these Kinderhook plates and then he went to his KEP, he saw this boat, he looked up the boat, he found the boat, and then he saw what it says, and then he kind of threw that out there is, yeah, this is legit, and this is what it means. Once again, I think this shows that the more research we do, the more I think Joseph Smith really believed in what he was doing. Okay, let's go next to the Joseph Smith translation. Basically, as soon as Joseph was done translating the Book of Mormon, he went immediately into retranslating the Bible. There's an idea in the church that the Joseph Smith translation is an effort to restore the original text. The Book of Mormon says there's plain and precious parts missing from the Bible. And I think for many years, we understood the Joseph Smith translation as doing just exactly that, restoring the original text of what the original writer of the Old Testament actually wrote, but that was translated improperly or was removed. But LDS scholars, even our conservative scholars, are telling us that's not the case. Stephen Robinson said, Of course we believe the JST is inspired, but that is not the same thing as saying it always restores the original text of the Bible books. In 1828, the word translation was broader in its meaning than it is now, and the Joseph Smith translation should be understood to contain additional revelation, alternate readings, prophetic commentary or midrash, harmonization, clarification, and corrections of the original, as well as corrections to the original. Fair Mormon says the Joseph Smith translation is not a translation in the traditional sense. Joseph did not consider himself a translator in the academic sense. The JST is better thought of as, an, as a kind of inspired commentary. Joseph was not usually restoring lost text. The JST of the Bible is not, as some members have presumed, simply a restoration of lost biblical text, 
or an improvement on the translation of known text. Rather, the JST also involves harmonization of doctrinal concepts, commentary, and elaboration on the biblical text, and explanations to clarify points of importance to the modern reader. Terrell Gibbons is a good definition for the word translate, how Joseph Smith used it, is translate means to rescue something from the brink of oblivion and re-endow it with new eternal significance and new life. Thomas Wayman is a BYU professor who found that Joseph Smith was using the Adam Clark Bible commentary when he was doing the Joseph Smith translation. Here's a quote from him. A student assistant of mine, Haley Wilson Lemon, was working for me about four years ago now, I've been, and I've worked on the JST my whole career. It's been interesting because it makes a claim to originality, at least modern Mormons claim that. And so I've been probing it through my career, and I had begun to think that Joseph Smith used a variety of sources, but I hadn't nailed it down. And so I said to Haley, I think you should take Buck's Theological Dictionary, I think you should take Thomas Scott's notes, and I think you should take Adam Clark and start comparing it to a series of test passages in the JST and see what crops up, because I'm suspecting there's influence, but I don't know. And she comes back, and we look at the column of Adam Clark, and it's overwhelming. There are some strong parallels. And so, over the course of about 12 to 14 months, Haley compared every single JST to all of these, and we have a massive amount of data. And sure enough of it, it's very clear. It's conclusive that Joseph Smith used Adam Clark. And when I say use, I want to stick to that term. This isn't him simply saying, okay, here's three sentences in Clark. I'm going to copy it out and call that inspiration. It's not that. He has words that come from Clark that now come into kind of an expanded sentence that Joseph has created. Clark will recommend flipping the order of verses, and Joseph will do that. Weird words like unicorn and Isaiah, Joseph will go to Clark to realize that's not unicorn. We've known about this research for several years, and the book is finally published this week. I haven't had a chance to review it, but this is really, really interesting research. And it shows, once again, Joseph's process in Revelation. He's not afraid to consult other sources, and he doesn't see that as being a problem. He sees that as being part of the role of him as a prophet. He's supposed to study it out. He's supposed to understand everything he possibly can and then take what he thinks is the best. Through the revelation of the Holy Ghost, he takes what's best and then he uses it. Terrell Givens talks about how many of our doctrines that seem unique, we seem to tie that to Joseph Smith's very later years and the Nauvoo period, but he's seen the genesis of all those ideas in the book of Moses very, very early on in the Restoration. He believes that the doctrines of pre-existence, the beginning of theosis and deification, the nature of God as the material God, the God who weeps, God with body parts and passions, the atonement as healing versus simply a restitution of sin, that the problem is not a state of sin, but a state of weakness or woundedness. He believes all these doctrines are coming right from the very beginning, 1830 and forward, in the Book of Moses and the other parts of the Joseph Smith translation and the Doctrine and Covenants revelations. He talks about the JST revelatory process, and he says that there was a time period when Joseph Smith was revealing Doctrine and Covenants section 29 and also was revealing Moses chapter 3 through 6, and DNC 29 came first. And in section 29, there are five long, unique phrases. A couple of them are the Lord created all things, both spiritual and temporal, first spiritual, secondly temporal. They should not die until I should send forth angels to declare unto Adam and Eve repentance and redemption. Well, 
All five of these very unique and long phrases also appear in Moses chapter three through six. So what Terrell Givens says is that Joseph produces Moses chapter three through six. Every one of those phrases appears in the Moses narrative, but now those phrases appear in the context of this chronologically coherent, smooth narrative. It's beautiful. It's amazing. This is just a year after the Book of Mormon translation, and I would say this is exactly the same process of what's going on in the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith is studying out. He's got these revelatory phrases in his mind, and then somehow he just pops them out in this beautiful, smooth, coherent narrative in the Book of Moses, and he did the exact same thing in the Book of Mormon. I think all this gives us insight into how the Book of Mormon was done. So if someone says, how could have Joseph Smith done what he did with the Book of Mormon? How could have he done this beautiful doctrine? Where did he get these beautiful doctrines? How did he do this smooth narrative? Where did he, how did he insert all these inspiring phrases? Well, how did he do it with the Book of Moses? Because a year later, he did it with the Book of Moses. And we know that this is not a translation of an ancient record. We know this is more of a Midrashic kind of revelatory experience. And Joseph Smith is revealing things by the power of God. So for me, it's the same process. Another insight Terrell Gibbons gives about the Book of Moses is that it introduces the concept of universalism for the first time in the Restoration. He describes the universalism in Joseph's day as being a false universalism that's that's identified in the Book of Mormon and it's condemned in the Book of Mormon. And that's the it's the school teacher that says, "I'm going to pass you all. Everybody gets a free pass." And that's where you get the eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. So that's the false universalism that's in Joseph Smith's day that the Book of Mormon condemns. Then the alternative to that is the strict disciplinarian school teacher who says, no, you study to take the exam, and if you fail, you fail, and you're out. And this is the God that is there in the Protestant Reformation, and even it appears to be in the Book of Mormon. But then Joseph Smith through the book of Moses and then later doctrine, he is restoring a new kind of God. Terrell Givens says, we believe there's a third way and that this is the God who's the ever patient tutor who commits to us and says, I will never forsake you and I will do whatever it takes until you master this material and are transformed by it. That's the God that we believe Joseph Smith restored. He sees the first evidence of this coming in Moses 7, 38 and 39. But behold, these which thine eyes are upon shall perish in the floods, and behold, I will shut them up. A prison have I prepared for them, and that which I have chosen hath pled before my face. Wherefore, he suffereth for their sins, inasmuch as they will repent, and the day that my chosen shall return unto me, and until that day they shall be in torment. So this is talking about the people in Noah's flood day that were wicked, that were destroyed in the flood, and they were shut up in a prison. That looks like it's the, the genesis of the concept of the spirit world, the spirit prison and spirit paradise. But then these people have the ability to repent. How could that be? These are evil people that were evil in the world. According to our doctrine, they should be condemned. But it says they have the potential to repent and return. Now let's go to DNC 19. This is a revelation that Joseph Smith gave in the summer of 1829. Starting in verse 4, And surely every man must repent or suffer, for I, God, am endless. Wherefore I revoke not the judgments which I shall pass, but woe shall go forth, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, yea, to those who are found on my left hand. Nevertheless, it is not written that there shall be no end to this torment, but it is written endless torment. What? That's confusing. 
It's not written that there should be no end to this torment, but it is written, endless torment. Here's my theory on what's going on. I think Joseph Smith had a problem with some of the harsh language in the Book of Mormon. I said before my theory on the Book of Mormon that it put a stamp on the Protestant Reformation and took the very best of all the doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, put it in the Book of Mormon, and this serves as an anchor that we're tied to in the Restoration. Now Joseph Smith can go explore, but he still has this anchor of the Book of Mormon that he's tied to, but he can go explore some new doctrines. This is the summer of 1829. The Book of Mormon has just barely been finished. And Jacob 6.10, and you think about the Book of Mormon order, Jacob 6.10 is translated at the very end of the Book of Mormon because they started in Mosiah, went to the end, and then restarted. So Jacob 6.10 is at the very end. Jacob 6.10 says, And according to the power of justice, for justice cannot be denied, ye must go away into that lake of fire and brimstone, whose flames are unquenchable, and whose smoke ascendeth up forever and ever, which lake of fire and brimstone is endless torment. So here's my crazy theory for the day. Some people say that Martin Harris might have subscribed to some more of universalist doctrine. Joseph Smith's father also was known to believe in some universalist doctrine. This revelation was given to Martin Harris, and it came almost directly after Jacob 6.10 was translated, and this reference to this lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. And I wonder if we have something going on here like Martin Harris or Joseph Smith's father in a Zelophehad's daughter kind of way says to Joseph Smith, are you sure this is right? Could you check with God to see if this endless torment is right? Because it doesn't jive with my worldview. And maybe Joseph Smith gets new revelation, even though the ink is barely even dry on the Book of Mormon, and we've got this endless torment doctrine. Maybe Joseph Smith is already getting new revelation that, it, that he needs to fix this. So let's go on. Verse 7, again, it is written, eternal damnation, wherefore it is more expressed than other scriptures. I think that word express means like urgent or blunt or maybe harsh in this context. Again, it is written, eternal damnation, wherefore it is more expressed than other scriptures, that it might work upon the hearts of the children of men altogether for my name's glory. Wherefore, I will explain unto you this mystery, for it is meet unto you to know even as mine apostles. I speak unto you that are chosen in this thing, even as one, that you may enter into my rest. For behold, the mystery of godliness, how great it is. Here's the kicker. For behold, I am endless, and the punishment which is given from my hand is endless punishment, for endless is my name. Wherefore, eternal punishment is God's punishment, endless punishment is God's punishment. Back to verse 6. It is not written that there shall be no end to this torment, but it is written endless torment. And here's why it says endless, because that's my name. Endless is my name, eternal is my name. So if I give endless punishment, it's my punishment, and I can make it last as long as I want it to. I can make it last an eternity, or I can make it last 100 years, or I can make it last a year, or I can make it last 10 minutes. It's my punishment, and I'll give it to you as long as I want to. I think that's Joseph's resolution of, of how to make sense of this harsh-sounding, unfair-sounding Book of Mormon language with what he received in this new revelation just moments after he translated it. Then the big whopper on universalism came in 1832, a couple years later. Joseph and Sidney Rigdon were working on the Joseph Smith translation. They were in the New Testament, and they were working on John 5.29. 
and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So they're looking at this verse, and they see that there's different variations in the resurrection. And this doesn't make sense to them according to the traditional definitions of heaven and hell. So Joseph receives a revelation, and that's section 76, and that's that great revelation called the vision, where they see the three kingdoms. And this was a big deal. A lot of people were really upset by this revelation. They thought Joseph Smith was going full-on universalism. A lot of people apostatized. They left the church. Brigham Young, it was really difficult for him. He said it took him a long time to come to terms with this. Some scholars believe that we never really caught the vision of Joseph Smith and that we've kind of dumbed this whole thing down. We've kind of turned the three kingdoms into just kind of our own version of the Christian heaven and hell, just with one extra kingdom. But Terrell Givens is arguing that this is not how Joseph Smith intended it, that he believed that there was progression between the kingdoms. He saw Alvin in a vision in the celestial kingdom, and that started him really thinking about what's going on here. And Joseph Smith believed that there was progression between the kingdoms and that it was believed and taught by the prophets all the way up into the 1950s and 60s when Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie put, kind of put a kibosh on that. Bruce R. McConkie called this one of the great heresies that there could be movement between the kingdoms. He wanted there not to be movement between the kingdoms. But Terrell Givens says that Joseph Smith believed that there was, and he believes that was the understanding in the church before the 1950s and 60s. James Talmadge said, In accordance with God's plan of eternal progression, advancement from grade to grade within any kingdom and from kingdom to kingdom will be provided for. That makes sense to me, and I think it's universalism with some teeth. This life is important. It's not time to eat, drink, and be merry. And this makes sense to me in a very pragmatic way. If I make a hundred good decisions in a row, I'm going to create a heaven on earth for myself and the people around me. If I make a hundred bad decisions in a row, I'm going to create hell on earth for myself and for the people around me and my loved ones. Do we want to be in heaven or do we want to be in hell? When do we want to be in heaven and when do we want to be in hell? Do we want to create heaven for ourselves and our loved ones right now? Do we want to do it in 10 years after we've gone through some hell? Do we want to do it in 50 years? Do we want to do it on our deathbed? Do we want to do it in the spirit world? Or do we want to do it after we're in one of the kingdoms? If we don't want to be in heaven, we don't need to be. We can make bad decisions and we can create a hell. Or we can make good decisions and create a heaven. I really like this doctrine and it makes a lot of sense to me. And I love how Joseph Smith kind of put this wrapper. He put a huge wrapper around this Christian world of this world and heaven and hell. And the wrapper on one side is the preexistence, and the wrapper on the other side is this eternal progression. We're free to progress at our rate, and if we want to move towards the light and towards God, we can. And if we want to move towards darkness and bad decisions, and that's also our right. But God wants to save us, and God wants us to be in heaven with him. Okay, enough preaching on that. I love the doctrines that Joe Smith gave us in these translations and these revelations. I think that's about what we wanted to cover today in this episode. You might be thoroughly confused right now thinking, why would God do this? Why would God do that? Why would God reveal things to Joseph Smith about the interpretation of the facsimiles or whatever that were that turned out to be wrong? Why would God reveal something in the Book of Mormon about endless torment and then and then shortly after that reveal something to Joseph Smith that seemingly reverses all that? 
So I'm trying to do two things in this podcast series. I'm trying to present the very best apologetic material that is coming from the Maxwell Institute, Terrell Gibbons, Richard Bushman, who I think are the apologists that are providing the very best explanations and the and being the most true to intellectualism and science. And if they're saying things that make you wonder why would God do that, why would God do this, then I think those are reasonable questions and I can't answer that for them. For myself, I'm viewing religion as a ground up, as a human up endeavor. So my answer to all those is that God likely didn't. If you're, if you have a real illogical question about why would God do this? Why would God do that? My personal take is that God probably didn't. And this is humans best understanding about things about God and religion, but we may not be always getting it right. When I use words like revelation, I'm using it in terms of a human taking their best attempt to try to ascertain the will of God, but that may not be true in an absolute God-directed way. I view inspiration in terms of we are inspired by Scripture when the Holy Ghost moves us as we interact with Scripture, not necessarily the Scripture creation process. But then I also believe that it's very possible that God is inspiring directly in an absolute way, but I look at that most likely as a nudge in the general direction. But I think the religion that we have today because of it is true and that it helps us become our best selves, facilitates our worship and seeking God. It facilitates our serving each other, our trying to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and become our best self. And as a religion, we have a modern prophet and revelation, and we're trying to get better and better. And... I think that's what we wanted to accomplish in this episode. Thank you for listening to the end, and please join us next time.